Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Hello, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This feels very, very odd considering I am speaking on a podcast and you cannot see me because I'm having technical difficulties. So this is Rachel Marshall, along with Bruce Weiner, your trusty co-host. And you will just have to trust that I'm here today. Um, And we have an amazing guest with an amazing conversation for you that we do not want you to miss. So today we are talking about how to make sure that you avoid the pitfalls of leaving an inheritance. And here for this wonderful conversation is Dr. Lee Hausner. Dr. Lee, I wanted to thank you for joining us for this this conversation, this podcast today. I'm looking forward to it, Rachel. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to jump right into the topic as we have a little bit of a limited time today, but I wanted to just open this conversation with this idea that receiving an inheritance or a gift of money can seem like a very good thing and should seem like a good thing. However, if you want your inheritance that you leave to your children, to your grandchildren, to generations after you, and you want to have a positive impact on your children, you really need a careful approach to how you handle the understanding, your understanding of the power of money. And so we're talking with Dr. Lee Hausner today. I'm going to give her full bio in just a second, but she's a consultant to high net worth families, family businesses, and family offices. She's written extensively. She's spoken all the way from USC to the Davos Conference in Switzerland And so I encourage you to join in with your questions about leaving an inheritance, leaving money behind to your children, as today we're discussing the pitfalls of inheritance that prosperous families encounter, and really then how to avoid them. So Dr. Lee, again, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. So let's go ahead and jump into Dr. Lee. Can you share with us a little bit about your story? And... I really would love for you to just pinpoint a few of the pieces because you've done a lot of work in the field of psychology with the school district that led you to some amazing conclusions and some great work, and then some additional writing in really being able to deliver such value to high net worth families. How did you, how did that background begin for you? You know, I think Rachel, I'm a psychologist by training, but I was always interested really more in kind of larger groups. I wasn't the kind of psychologist who wanted to open an office and have somebody coming in on Tuesdays and Thursdays talking about the same thing for three years. So I took the degree in school psychology. And I think probably the most significant thing was when I became the senior psychologist for the Beverly Hills school system. Now I had done my training in Oakland in the ghetto. So I have done the whole range and I actually taught parenting at, um, with the Oakland public schools in, in the ghetto. Mm. And I come to Beverly Hills and I thought this is going to be easy. <laughs> I had gone from, I, I, my husband and I, when we got married, my husband was a physician and we, we ended up practicing in Covina. So now I was a psychologist in a very middle class school district. And then we moved to the West side and I became the psychologist for Beverly Hills. And my initial impression was this will be easy. These kids should have the best of everything, right? The best of the tutors and the, I walked into that district and I got to tell you that it was a disaster. I mean, I had cases that were just, I used to make a joke that I have 10 years of soap opera in my files 
And oh, if wow. I when I put them on the television screen, people would say, oh, this is an imaginative writer. It was not. What we had in Beverly, and we had, I was just telling to Bruce, we had an interesting situation in terms of types of wealth. I mean, everybody thinks of Beverly Hills with the movie stars, but there's actually four different types of wealth. Mm. In Beverly Hills, you have that first generation entrepreneurial, hard charging, you know, wealth creator and what that entails to the family. Then you have individuals who are on trust funds and they're second and third generation individuals who are absolutely living on their trust funds. Then we have the industry. People talk about the industry. It's the motion picture industry. It's all the entertainment industry. It's a sports industry. It's actors and actresses. It's directors. It's producers. It's a lot of individuals. Mm-hmm. And then I was there when the Iranians came. And so we were integrating a population that came here with a very wealthy in their oh, wow. original countries. Half of them been able to get the money out, a lot of money out. And the other half not being able to get the money out, but has still grown up with that kind of luxury attitude. And now we're here in Beverly Hills, not speaking the language and not having their money and not even really thinking that they were coming to stay permanently. They didn't come to immigrate here as other people do. They came to hang out here for four or five years while they cleared up that little mess in Iran. And then they were going to go back. So it was a very interesting area of looking at wealth issues. And then I said to Bruce, I've been an international resource for YPO traveling around the world. So I've looked at wealth all around the world. So I think I have a very kind of an interesting perspective of wealth, how it can be used productively and how it is used destructively. And I really think it's about being very intentional and particularly about understanding that a family is a business. Mm -hmm. And I apply the same strategic planning to the family as I would apply to a business. And if in fact you look at what you're trying to create in the family, strategically, then you realize how you use wealth productively and not destructively. And that means actually when you're raising that next generation, as well as when you are transferring wealth in terms of an estate plan. And lately, that has been a huge focus of my practice, as many individuals are in that area where they're thinking about transferring wealth, and they're concerned about it, and they really want to know how to do it in the way that benefits the family long range. You have said so much in that power packed introduction right there. And I think it's extremely eye-opening to realize that it's, that wealth is productive, can be productive or destructive. Family is a business. You mentioned that it matters how you raise children and then also how you transfer the wealth. So let's dig into a little bit about what you have unpacked in, you wrote a chapter in the book, Wealth of Wisdom, that was originally how we came across you and your information. And it said, or the title was, how can you avoid the negative impacts of giving money to family members? What would you say are the three main things, or what did you say there um, were the three main things that determine the success or failure of what you, you called instant wealth? You compared somebody winning the lottery and how that can often lead to not keeping wealth in in your hands and keeping wealth in the family for a long time, where sometimes when somebody is receiving an inheritance, it's very similar that they're getting that instant transfer of wealth. And what determines that success or failure? Well, when I'm talking about transferring wealth to families, I want to differentiate between transferring wealth, because I think I talked about it, giving wealth to other family members versus giving wealth to your own family members, because those Mm -hmm. are two different things. 
So let's talk about in your own family, the transferring of wealth. If in fact, that next generation has not been prepared. Mm -hmm. And by prepared, I mean that they haven't been able to find their own level of competency and self-confidence. And they haven't really learned strategically just how to manage money, the fundamentals Mm -hmm. of money, of making a budget. Then we have some difficulties of transferring wealth. And if that next generation feels that wealth is the thing that makes them important, then we have a problem. If the wealth is part of their self-esteem, we really have some serious issues. So when I'm talking about a very a very affluent family comes to me, and particularly it's a first-generation family, because I think a lot of the errors are made in that first-generation family, because many times the wealth creators came from a very poor background. And they mm-hmm. remember having their nose pressed against the glass and wanting that shiny new bicycle, and their family couldn't afford it. So when they have money, their kids get everything bicycles and cars and they crash the cars and they get another car and they're going to overindulge to make up for what they felt they missed. But what they don't realize is what they missed is what made them successful by having to work hard and having to struggle and not having them and getting competent. That is what made them achieve. And so when we take that drive, the hunger that they talked about in the Rocky movie away then we're not going to get people who are going to feel good about themselves independent of the money. I am talking about baking a cake and the money is just icing on a well-baked cake. I'm more concerned that how we are raising the kids and the, and what we're saying about money and what are we using money for? And of course, one of the things that I love is when the family is very philanthropic, the next generation can't be counting the inheritance. And I'm also concerned about there are two things that concern me in the wealth transfer of your initial family. How much and when? When is very important to me. And my my son and his partner make a joke. They say, when my mom comes into a family, it's not good for the inheritance. But that's Uh not exactly true. I am very concerned about when we are passing significant passive wealth. And by passive wealth, I mean the kind of wealth that somebody wakes up in the morning and doesn't have to do anything and has enough money coming from what was transferred to, to survive. Okay. That's the passive wealth. So I don't like a lot of passive wealth be coming to the next generation during career building years. And I take career building years up to 40. Now, having said that, I have this kind of a template for when wealth comes out. I certainly let wealth come out for education. I let wealth come out for a down payment of a house. I let wealth come out for, there's a thing I call the launching pad. Uh, your child goes to New York, graduates from college and gets a job in publishing at $45,000 a year pre-tax or 60000 pre-tax. They can't mm-hmm. live in New York for that without help. So there's a launching pad where I'm very happy to let the family help. Maybe they're helping with the rent while somebody is actually doing something. They're getting started in their career. They're not lying in bed saying, I can't find a job. Right. And so uh, I fund for health insurance. Um, I, I fund for well, a thing called an incentive trust that if you're if your kids want to do something that is in the they, they would love it, but it's not economically so rewarding, like teaching or working for a nonprofit or being a dancer, or, then the family can match. They can do a matching fund. So, I mean, there are lots of ways before 40 that. If a family has significant wealth, then I do let wealth come out. 
but not these big pops where they mm-hmm. would do nothing. Okay. Now, so having said that, I am also concerned with the number. I mean, how much do you really have to transfer in passive wealth when there are other kinds of things that I would like done with the wealth that enhances the legacy of the family? Mm, and I know that you've heard this because it was a concept that Jay Hughes and I talked about years and years ago before everyone else started talking about, about the four different types of wealth, you know, what the wealth of the family is made up of, you know, it's, it's made up of financial human capital, capital, yes, the four capitals. Mm -hmm. So what in my structure, when people are coming to me and talking about the wealth transfer, after we decide how much we really need to transfer in dollars to the next generation, we've got money left over, let's look at these long-term legacy trusts. Let's look at human capital and let's look at, at education capital and financial capital and social capital. And by that, I mean, in the in the human cap, well, I'll, I'll wait to the human capital, but in the intellectual, I want a big educational trust. Let's put money in this kind of dynastic educational trust so that we're sure that su- successive generations have the opportunity to become competent, right? Mm-hmm. If we're talking about financial capital, I love a family bank. I want to provide entrepreneurial capital for members of the family so that they themselves can be wealth creators. So they don't have to be wealth creators as they prior generation, but they have that ability. Yes. We're talking about social capital. I want a family foundation so that that is the also becomes something collective that the family can, can manage to participate as a collective group, giving the money away. And then that, that human capital, I like that legacy uh, trust because that's what funds the annual family meetings. The family's coming together. And if you want your families to stay connected, they have to physically come together. So when yes. families go away, and I often go away with families and, you know, run these three-day retreats, it costs money. Mm-hmm. It costs money to, to do that. So when we're talking about how do we best use this sum of money, you can see that I'm going to allocate what you actually want the kids to have passively in their bank account. And now what do we do with the rest of it? And we've got the way to make this wealth be very productive for not only the next generation, but for future generations. Uh, there's so much here. Bruce, I feel like I'm going to take over the conversation. I, I'm going to pause just for a second. So you have the opportunity to share any thoughts and questions that you have right now. Well, one of the things, um, as I was reading some of your comments in your book and, and listen to you on different videos, and you already brought it up about self-esteem, and as a former educator myself, I used to fight my peers because there was this movement 30, and maybe it's still going on today, I don't even know, 30, 40 years ago where everybody was saying, we have to give them self-esteem. And I kept saying, you cannot give anyone self-esteem. Self-esteem is earning by, by accomplishing things. And then you feel good about that you actually accomplished that particular thing. And I think what ends up happening is people look at people that receive inheritances or receive big gifts, and there is this feeling that they don't deserve it. Whether they know it or express it or not, they really don't feel good about themselves because they think, well, I did not deserve this. I don't know why I have that. You know, Bruce, you know, honestly, I, I, I've, I've taken a little bit of issue with this thing about getting overwhelmed with guilt about, about the money. It's not the money. 
It's that you were not raised properly. If you feel overwhelmed about the money, it is not the money. You were not raised to feel good about yourself. And self-esteem has got two important components. It's I am okay unconditionally and I am competent. Okay. So your job as a parent is to make sure that the messages that you are giving your child and the situations in which you place your child leads to, I feel okay unconditionally. I don't have to compete with my older brother or sister or father or this or that. I'm okay because of just who I am and I'm competent. Mm -hmm. And the idea of competency becomes very, very important in privileged families. And I will tell you, it very much relates around school. You know, if you've got a child who's bright, they have a bright child and that child is in public school. That child is in the upper quartile. That child feels very good about him or herself as a learner because the, the other kids want that child on the team. Uh, the teachers smile at that child. So this child is saying, I, I'm, I'm really okay. And I'm feeling good about myself, but you are a, you know, very affluent family and you're not going to put your child in public school. You're going to go to the most highly competitive school mm-hmm. in the area. And what they don't tell you in that high, they, you know, the, the normal bell-shaped curve, your child is in the upper quartile. But you're going to take that child and put them in, I'm not going to name the name, but XYZ, where they only take highly gifted. So your child who was feeling very good about himself in the regular world suddenly is in this highly competitive structure where he suddenly fell down to the middle quartile that arbitrarily, mm-hmm. Okay. And so now this child feels under pressure. And because you're paying so much money, you're saying, and when I'm paying all this money, I want A's and B's. <laughs> and so now this is why you have created real problems. That child is not going to come out feeling I'm okay unconditionally or that I'm feeling competent mm-hmm. because arbitrarily they were put in a situation which wasn't leading to that. And if you have three kids, they can't all necessarily be in the same private school. Maybe Mary can be in that highly competitive school and Johnny should be in the local school where He feels great about himself. So the whole issue, when you feel good about yourself and you feel confident, the fact that you are going to inherit money is not going to affect you at all. You do not care what people think about your accomplishments because you're uh, you're achieving independently. And the excess money, you will be philanthropic. You will find very good uses for that money. So it's not the money itself that's a bad rap. It's how you were raised and how you were parented. So valuable. It's so interesting that people do think it's all about the money, but money is just a magnifier of your soul. It's a, it's something that reflects or amplifies what's already inside. And you're saying even before this piece of the conversation, you started by talking about, we need a thoughtful um, transfer of wealth because it needs to be about their development. And if we're thinking more so about how to have successful children who will be well-adjusted and who will use their gifts and skills and their unique ability to become wealth creators. They'll find ways to deliver value into the world. They'll do their best. They'll figure out what uh, what they need to do to, to feel good and to be a contributor. Now money can just add to that possibility for them rather than being the sole source, correct? Money has no value, zero value. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. We give it the value. We impart value to money. It is just something you use to exchange for services and goods. That's it. It could be salt. It could be sand. It could be rocks. It could be any. It's got no value. We have, and and we've done some very neurotic things about money. You know, when money was used as a substitute for love, 
because parents were too busy, but they kept buying things. And let me tell you, people are going to be very obsessed about money. And it's going to all about, it's going to be about having this and having that. And you, and someone's always going to have something better. There's mm -hmm. always going to be somebody who can buy something bigger or better. And so now you're going to be in this neurotic cycle on a, on a hamster wheel, never feeling good about where you are because you got into this competitive money situation. So Dr. Lee, when you, when you work with families, they obviously have approached you. Yes. Um, you know, I, I have a saying that I think I made up. I don't know. Maybe I stole from somebody. I, I always say that you cannot tell a narrow-minded person they're narrow-minded. Mm -hmm. That it's an impossibility. So, do you have do you have some signs that you, when you're interviewing a family or they're interviewing you, that you say, "Nah, this." They, they're never going to change. They're, they're never going to be able to have a breakthrough with the family. Do you have some guidelines that you can identify and say, yes, I can help this family? You know what, Bruce? I think that because of, of who I've been and the reputation that I established, someone isn't going to come to me if they don't want to make a change. Now, there, there can be a lot of dysfunction, and you know, uh, but they know already by the fact that they seek me out, I'm not seeking them out, or someone is referring them to me for a reason. It is very rare that I would say, I'm not going to take this client. There was actually one case years ago where I was speaking at a meeting, and this man came up to me afterwards and said, you really got to come to work with us. And he's got five adult children, and everyone had substance abuse problems. And he did, and his, he's on his fourth marriage. And I said, you want to know something? I'm not. I'm not, I don't do head transplants. You're next. And he was a serial entrepreneur. I said, what you need to buy is a rehabilitation hospital because we had, <laughs> adult, no, honestly, and truly, I said, well, they had adult children in their forties and fifties, never got clean, never worked. No, I'm not going to take a case like that. That's not going to be workable. But most of the time people come and they do want to make a change. And if somebody's willing to make a change, I am willing to help work with them. Uh, but as I said, I think that the people that are coming to me, they know about me. It's somewhat of a self-selective process. I don't have a website. You can't go on the internet and find me and call me. So, <laughs> so I guess I, I guess uh, some of the things I was thinking about is like maybe just because they tend to be more intimate thinkers, maybe the wife is pushing, you know, the the husband to you know do this because she sees there's. A potential problem, but then the husband says X, Y, or Z. And are there any red flags in in a relationship that you see in those situations? I'm asking because I know some of our listeners are going to to wonder, you know, if they need to get their house in order before they actually work on other things. Well, I, you know, I think it's important that both parties be committed to being intentional about the family. I think that my approach is a little less threatening because I'm not saying you got to come to therapy. See, I'm really doing consulting. I'm doing strategic planning for families. So if somebody has been hesitant about, in quotes, therapy, that's not what I do. And I'm real clear about that. If a member needs therapy in a, in a client family that I'm working with, I will help them find a therapist. But I am not the therapist. I am the consultant to the entire family. So even when very often the next generation will come to me and say, we need some help, but you know, my father uh, is this crusty, difficult, blah, blah, blah. 
And I say, well, let me have a meeting with that person. Okay. With this difficult, you know, (laughs) and what I will say to that person is give me a vision of what you want this family to look like. Give Mm -hmm. me a vision. Excellent. And they're always going to say a good vision. So I say, if that's the vision, then here's how you have to work back to get that vision. And I got to tell you something now, now they're going to go along. Now they don't, they don't feel like I'm threatening them or I tell them what they have to do. What I'm trying to do is fulfill the positive vision. No one tells me I want my kids in court uh, fighting and over the money. They don't. They do this rosy glowing thing. They're all going to be going down, skipping down the thing, singing Kumbaya. Okay, fine. <laughs> That's a vision. Let's, let's figure out what we, how we have to back up. And what I usually do, which has, I think, been very helpful. I wrote the last book I wrote was called The Legacy Family that a guide to creating a successful multi-generation family. And I have a PowerPoint presentation on that book. So my first introduction to a family is to say, here's what these healthy families have done. Here's what families that, that are in their fourth and fifth generation successfully, here are their characteristics. So let's look at that and then let's reverse engineer it. So let's see what we need to do for this family to achieve these goals. So, you know, it's it's a very, I think it's a less threatening thing, Bruce, than, than someone's dragging someone to, to therapy. I got this it. This is fantastic. So another, Go ahead. Another, thing, another thing from one of your chapters, you said uh, a perennial concern is whether to give uh, to recipients equally. And um, I thought this was very insightful because I've always told people that, you know, if you if you already feel like you have to be a hundred percent equal in whatever you give, even your time, then you really haven't set your your uh, family up in a in a good mental emotional state because fair isn't always equal. You know, somebody might need a little bit more, you know, coaxing and and consoling and help along the way where somebody else won't. So, can you comment a little bit about that in your chapter about? Uh, the, the concerns of equality? Yes, I will. I will. Th- Let me tell you how I want to end I'm not talking about emotional. I'm not talking about your emotional time. I'm not talking about that at all. But what happens with families is that they view the financial distribution very often as mom loved you more than me. Now, having said that, Having said that, if in fact you are not going to make the estate plan equal, there needs to be a clear reason why you are doing that. And there are some good reasons. First of all, there's somebody that may be handicapped, you know, physically or intellectually handicapped. Now, that does not mean that they're a drug addict. The family is not going to cut slack for someone who's already used up $400,000 of the family funds in rehab programs and doesn't get themselves clean. Okay. There's also a situation where um, I, where somebody has made a tremendous amount of money and they don't need the money. But you as a family, you go and say, are you OK if, in fact, the financial distribution is not equal? And generally, they would say yes. And maybe they're going to get something else special, a special pain or something that that will make up for the lack of financial equality. But if you're not, or maybe somebody was a caretaker 
Maybe someone was a caretaker for the family. And I believe that whoever was the caretaker living in that community with aging parents, they get paid for that. And we can actually even figure out what that amount should be. And so it could be unequal because of that. There could be reasons. But if you don't have a good reason for it and you don't make it equal, then what you are doing is potentially creating what I call psychological cancer cells for the next generation. And when people ask me what I do, I say I look for psychological cancer cells in families and I try to cut them out before they metastasize. And being (laughs) unequal in the estate plan without a reason or without an explanation potentially creates those psychological cancer cells. Uh, Oh my goodness. There's so much good stuff in here. I love that you mentioned even the idea of family banking and having access to resources so that somebody can become productive on their own. You uh, mentioned as well that it's really important for them to figure out how to choose trusts or trustees um, to be able to select their advisors. And some of these things can just be very overwhelming for the next generation who is figuring out how to handle the financial responsibility. I think it's overwhelming for the the trust, the grantors of the trust. The grantors Mm -hmm. of the trust, their biggest concern is who do I make as a trustee? I can't make my best friend who's going to die or be incompetent at the same time I am. Mm -hmm. So who do I want to be a trustee on these significant trusts for my children and my grandchildren? That is a huge, that's a huge area that we just have to figure out how we get more qualified trustees. Oh, absolutely. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap up here and I I feel like I want to have a much longer conversation with you. Now, Dr. Lee, you have written multiple books and I just want to at least mention these because I think that they would be really valuable if somebody is interested in digging into more of this kind of work. So the first book that I mentioned was Wealth of Wisdom, the top 50 questions. No, that isn't really a book that I wrote, Rachel. That's just a chapter that I wrote. That's correct. That's not one of my actual books that is in my book. Okay. So let's go with your book. So you have Children of Paradise, Successful Parenting for Prosperous Families. Then you also co-authored a book with Douglas K. Freeman, JD Legacy Families called The Definitive Guide to Creating a Successful Multigenerational Family, correct? Then I wrote a book about family business succession, which is called Hats Off to You, Finding Success in Family Business Succession. Yes. And And Doug and I wrote a a 100-page thing for the Council of Foundations on a Founder's Guide to Creating a Family Foundation. Excellent. Excellent. Well, what powerful resources. Um, If anyone would like to get your books, can they get them all on Amazon? Is there a specific location that they should go to? Yeah, they should all be on. They should be on Amazon. All right. And if you're looking up Dr. Lee's last name is H-A-U-S-N-E-R. Dr. Lee, as we just bring this to a close today, I really want to thank you for coming and sharing your time with us. I know that you speak all over the place and you have very high profile audiences. You're speaking to advisors. You're speaking to high net worth families. What would you say is the one thing that is most important for the wealth creator, the first generation to keep in their mind as they are looking to create prosperous next generations after them? The most important thing, the two most important is how am I going to help my children become the most competent that they can be? 
to be competent is probably the biggest gift that you can give to the next generation. And if they feel competent and they feel good about themselves, I am not concerned with what is going to happen with the wealth transfer. If I had to say one statement. The second thing that I also think, though, is that you spend a lot of time being very intentional in the business that helped you create the money. We are not as intentional in the business of the family. And mm-hmm. I say I am in the business of the family. And if you want to have a successful family, you're going to have to be intentional. You're going to have to have goals and strategies. You're going to have to have family meetings. It doesn't just happen. You just don't have these kids and turn around 20 years later and keep your fingers crossed and hope it all went well. Because mm-hmm. it won't. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There's a quote that reminds me of exactly what you said. And it's that um, culture eats structure for breakfast. This idea that family culture is going to trump everything and what you create in your culture, your rhythms, your routines, your habits, what's considered normal for you in your family, the conversations that you have are going to be the most important thing that override even a perfect estate plan, perfect um, legal planning, perfect financial structure. What really matters most is the family. The legal documents will not cover up the flaws in what's going on in the relationship. And as a matter of fact, it, it, it exacerbates it, you know, particularly when you're talking about, you know, in California, a lot of the wealth was created in real estate. It's very hard to divide real estate. So you're going to put three kids that never got along together managing real estate or an apartment building, a brother, two brothers who fought all the time. And just because they're adults, don't think that they're going to manage this well. They will not. And so even that, you have to be thoughtful about what, how you are locking people together in partnerships, which may or may not work. That's what makes the attorneys very happy because that's what leads to the lawsuits and bitterness and the breakup of family relationships. Ah, so work on the family, work on the relationships, make, help your kids feel competent, work on the business of the family. What powerful words of wisdom. Um, I think we'll wrap here, Bruce. I know that this felt way too short for a podcast. No wonder we always have at least an hour. And um, I am really thankful, Dr. Lee, that you took your time to come share with us today. And we sincerely appreciate your time. Would you like people to reach out to you if they have questions or what would you yes, leave they, them they with? Yes, they certainly can. And Rachel, I'm very happy at a later date to do a follow-up. If there's some other questions that, that come up, I, you know, I, I really love teaching. I mean, that's kind of in the, that. the mode that I'm in now. And I think that, you know, the best thing that I can do is just sort of give this information to as wide a, that's why I've been writing so much and, and speaking, because I want people to just get the information. To get the information, I hope that they can use it. <laughs> I hope I make it simple enough for them. I'm not complicated. I'm not talking psychobabble. I'm talking really ABCs of how we create healthy families. Well, and I love that there are people who are seeking the wisdom that you have to offer. And those are the people that you want to give that wisdom to. So thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. It's a pleasure. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Thank you for bearing with us and the technology changes and challenges and the delay and the short episode today. And please remember in closing, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on the moneyadvantage.com. 
If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.